Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. Uh, my name is Tim Hammerich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter, and it's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agriculture. The intent of the show is always to create a conversation. It's to pose the question, is this or is this not part of the future of agriculture? Why or why not? I, I don't intend to claim I am an expert in these topics or an authority. Uh, I'm really just curious about them myself and love to share what I'm learning with you and uh, try to create conversation around them. And, and I'm very, very pleased with the way this blockchain series has done that. And as I said in a previous episode, I, I want to continue with this series-based approach because it gives us more of a time to sort of sink into the issue and and to create conversation around it. I wanted to give, um, I gave a shout out last episode uh, to, to somebody who had a great way to to conceptualize this idea of blockchain. I want to give a, a shout out this episode too to a friend of mine, Carl Lippert, who has been a blockchain and cryptocurrency enthusiast for longer than I have and pointed me to some, some very useful resources. Along those lines of creating conversation. The story of this episode is kind of fun. Um, this past week, I got an email from somebody who said he'd, he'd been listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast um, and obviously caught some of the blockchain episodes, had done quite a bit of research on blockchain and would love to just hop on a phone call. So I was excited to get this email as I am whenever any of you reach out and get to talk about this stuff some more. So uh, I told him that maybe we'd even record some and if I thought it filled in some gaps, then we would release it as part of the series. It became clear within the first few seconds that not only did I want to release some of this audio, I wanted to release it as an entire episode of itself because we have on the show today, Alex Danko. Alex is an associate for Social Capital, which is a venture capital firm in the Silicon Valley. Alex is part of their Discover team, which gets to spend their time thinking about things that aren't quite, um, that are kind of coming on the horizon, that are coming next. So what are the big problems and the big solutions that are maybe coming in the future? Alex had uh, noticed that a lot of these problems that they were, that where they were thinking about on this team related in some way to agriculture, either a, a big problem or a big solution or both that, that somehow touched food and agriculture. And so he started looking for ag information and found this podcast and has been a listener for a while here. And of course, um, had also done a fair amount of research on blockchain. Um, so we got to have this conversation and talk a little bit about what he's seeing and how he thinks about blockchain. And he, the responses he gave were just extremely uh, clarifying for, for our purposes here. And I wanted to share them. One funny thing that he didn't mention to me was that he's noticed in talking to startup founders and people who really know their stuff that uh, those who know the most about blockchain use the word blockchain the least, <laughs> and which I thought was kind of funny because I've used the word blockchain a lot lately. So he, he has noticed that the more t people just use the word blockchain, the, le the less they know about it, which is probably, tr <laughs> probably true in my case. But anyway, uh, really great information here. I encourage you to maybe listen to this at slow speed because it might be a little bit like drinking through a fire hose, but we get to peek behind the curtain of blockchain and look at kind of what makes the system work. Um, Alex mentions that one of the reasons that blockchain doesn't come up a lot among experts is because that's the least 
interesting part about it. You know, a distributed ledger, yeah, everybody gets that part, got it. What's interesting is creating incentives for people to do work, not only to mine on the blockchain, which is what makes it all tick, and, and, and you're going to hear a lot about that, but also to create applications that solve real problems, real world business problems. So anyway, enjoy this interview. I know you will. I know I did. This is Alex Denko. He's an associate with Social Capital. Let me try to answer sort of three questions for you. Um, one is, uh, what is the problem? What is actually the problem that initially Bitcoin and now sort of all of these blockchain applications are attempting to solve? Right. Two is where does the trust actually come from? Like I said, and then three would be when a company builds, let's say, an agriculture tool on the blockchain quote, like, what does that mean? So let's start like with a really simple example. Right. So imagine you have a group of people who keeps records of payments to and from each other or something pretty simple, like a book of credits and debits. So, you know, if you pay for lunch and I owe you 20 bucks, that goes in the book. Right. And over time, this ledger gets accumulated, which contains the record and the state of our arrangement. Right. And again, it doesn't have to be money. It could be like, was this safety inspection passed? Yes, no. Or like, was this delivered on time? Yes, no. Or something like that. Mm -hmm. Now, we have this question, which is whose job is it to maintain the book? Right. Now, if you and I already trust each other, then we can just share this responsibility and collaborate. That's fine. But what if the group expands to include people that we don't know and that we don't trust, right? What we do in practice is we use trusted third parties, right? So you, you ask the bank to do it or you ask another company to do it or something. Like and that works, but it takes time and you have to pay them. And ultimately you're dependent on them to do your business. So for a while now, computer scientists have been asking this question, which is surely there must be some way that a large number of people can collaborate towards maintaining the state of some agreement or ledger in a way where we can trust the outcome, right? Surely there must be some way to do this with the internet and with computers and what have you. But turns out this is really hard, right? Because there's this basic question of what if people are dishonest, right? Or what if somebody gets hacked and somebody impersonates you? Or even just what if there are, like, what if there are problems? What if inaccurate information is being provided? Right? You could have people vote on what we believe to be the accurate state of the ledger or of the books. So again, it's very hard to make that tamper proof, right? Especially over the internet where people may be anonymous or you may not trust people. It's very hard to do that. Right. So this went unsolved for a long time. Now the breakthrough to this problem came when some anonymous person or possibly group of people who went by the name Satoshi Nakamoto had the idea that was Bitcoin. The idea is the following. And says, hey, what if instead of the group collaborating to maintain the state of the agreement, instead you made them compete? So let me say that one more time, because this is it's like the most important concept to understand. Instead of making the group collaborate and then placing a bunch of rules or restrictions or guides to make sure that nobody cheats, you instead force people to compete to maintain the state of the agreement. This is why you have a lot of like really free market type people very much like this idea, right? It is very, very use competition to get at the good outcome in its spirit, right? Even though it's like, it can be sort of hard to see why this is from the outside. 
the question is like, okay, well, if you have all these people and they have this shared ledger that they want to maintain and you want to make them compete to maintain the ledger, well, there's this question like, well, compete over what? Well, the answer that this Nakamoto, Satoshi Nakamoto came up with is, well, you need to make them compete over something where it is impossible to cheat, right? Where there is no possible way that you can hack your way to the front of the line. It turns out there actually are certain kinds of math problems that solve this requirement very nicely, right? There's math problems where there's no way to solve it other than using brute force computing power, right? But where the solution is very easy to verify, right? Hard to do, easy to verify, no way to cheat. Mm-hmm. So the question is, what if instead of trying to prevent cheating, we force everybody who wants to maintain this ledger to compete against one another, trying to solve these math problems in a race where cheating is impossible. And the winner gets to write down in the book what the state of the agreement is for this particular turn, right? So for five minutes worth of transactions and then seal it into this unchangeable pages of the book. And that is the blockchain, right? So when people actually talk about blockchain, it's just the record of this process that happens, right? Right. So why is this actually good? Well, the reason why this is helpful is because any one participant, whether you're a bad actor or you're a good actor or whoever you are, is very unlikely to find the solution to this math problem faster than the rest of the group will. Right. The group will basically always find it faster than any individual. So if you don't find that solution, it doesn't matter if you're trying to cheat or not, because no one will listen to right? It's, it's, again, it's like, instead of saying, how do we make sure no one lies? It flips the problem into how do we make sure that if you are lying, odds are no one is listening to you. Hmm. Right. So it's a different way of trying to get at this idea of trust. Yeah. It's making, making it negligible. If there is a lie in the system, it's it's, it's say, don't police it, just make it not matter. It's the same way. It's like saying, how do you prevent somebody from price gouging for some good? The answer is have it be an open market, right? If I'm in an open market and I'm overcharging for some good, people will just ignore me, right? It's a very different kind of solution than, oh, regulate the price to be X. The answer is, well, you could do that. Or you could simply say, well, compete to sell the good, right? Let the best contribution win. Now, here's the last piece of the puzzle, right? Which is how do you incentivize people to do all of this work, right? Put their computers to work solving math problems, right? How do you incentivize people to do all this work to make sure that no bad actors can get in and mess with things? The answer is, well, like participation is costly, right? It costs you computing resources, right? It costs you electricity in a very real sense to do this, right? When you, when you hear these reports on the internet of like, oh, Bitcoin mining is now consuming more power than some country, like Ireland or something, is because everybody is competing against each other to try to be the one to write down the state of the arrangement in the book, right? So again, this is a, like Bitcoin's electricity consumption is not a bug, it's actually a feature, which from an environmental standpoint is actually somewhat scary, but from a system design perspective, it's actually great news, right? Hmm. It means the system is working as, as designed. Right. Right. So the answer is, how do you incentivize people to do this? Yeah, it's because you reward the winner by giving them bitcoins, right? Or in a general sense, by giving them some token that is going to have value in the real world, right? So this is where, like, I have to give you a little bit of a hard time. For in your first episode, you said like Bitcoin and the blockchain are separate things, like they're not the same things. Like, well, actually, they are more the same thing than you would think, right? 
a blockchain or an open blockchain that everybody can contribute to is useless if there is not some way that I am incentivizing people to participate. Sure. Right. And that's what the token is. Right. The token, which, again, to sort of close the loop on the whole thing, has value because you can spend it doing whatever the network is useful for. So in the case of Bitcoin, like the reason why Bitcoin has value is other people use them to send and store money. Right. The reason why, you know, Ethereum, which we'll talk about in a second, has value is because you can use it in exchange for the computing network's power. Right. And the way that I get it is by actually powering the network myself. Mm -hmm. Right. So it solves the chicken and egg problem in a really nice way. Right. It says, well, if you want this network to be valuable, start working. And in doing so, you will be rewarded in the form of the network becoming valuable. Right. It's a very, very it solves the bootstrapping question in a really elegant way, which is super interesting. Wait, you, hold on. Let me let me stop you just real quick because you're doing such a great job of explaining this. You know, one one concept that I would love to hear just a little bit more in layman's terms is so we know uh, we know to, to go back to what you said, like about Bitcoin, uh, we know how much value Bitcoin uh, has has supposedly created in terms of what it's worth in real time. Mm-hmm. Ha, can you help us understand how that value gets created? Like, we, mm. there's a lot of speculation about, okay, well, it's just a bubble now. It shouldn't be worth these tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, but, but nobody, or I shouldn't say nobody, a lot of the people saying that don't really have a good method for valuing these things. Right. So, okay. uh, can you help that's us understand really that piece? Good, that's a really good question. I'm actually going to come back to it at the end. Okay. Um, because there's a, there, there, let, me, let, me, let me segue into answering that question, but I will uh, mm-hmm. get back to that because it's a very good question. So just to sort of reiterate that last point that I made one last time, it's like these tokens, so on the Bitcoin network, the token is just called a Bitcoin, right? On the Ethereum network, the token is called Ether or gas. Um, on some other coin, the token can be called whatever it is. The point is, these tokens have to exist because they are a what how they are how you reward people for doing the work of keeping the network secure right yeah and in order to give them value you say okay what we'll give these tokens value is we say well hey presumably our protocol our network is worth something right if it's not it has no utility then there's no point in doing any of this but presuming that it has utility you should be able to pay for the network in the form of these tokens. So let's say that I am a supply chain, you know, protocol or a supply chain blockchain or something. And, you know, you, a farmer want to work with somebody else, a distributor, and you use this blockchain in order to make all of your transactions work. Well, there's going to be some fee that I would, that the blockchain will charge you in order for doing all these work. So you would have to pay for it in the form of tokens, right? Now, where do you get those tokens? Well, you could get tokens by actually setting up a big computing rig to do all the computational work of making it work. But odds are you don't want to do that, right? You're a farmer. You don't want to mess with this. What you do is you go buy them from somebody who is not a farmer, but is a blockchain miner, right? Mm -hmm. You sort of complete this little loop. You say, well, listen, I'm good at farming. You're good at this type of computing work, which I don't have to understand. I just know that we can make a deal where I can buy tokens from you at a dollar each. And then I can spend these tokens to get the thing that I want, which is for the network to work. And the reason why the network works is because you have people like me who don't know anything about farming, but do know how to do the computing work to make it work. So you have a nice functioning three-way marketplace. Right. Really, it's really, it's a two-way marketplace plus a bunch of math. (laughs) 
Right. Uh, so so far so good. Yeah. Yeah. It, yes. You're doing a great job. Keep keep going though. This is this is fascinating. Okay. So again, sort of to make sure that this is that this is all going to come together because it's there's very much a chicken and egg problem with understanding why this all works because it all has to work together in order for any of it to function. Mm-hmm. Right. But when you this is where we can get to this question like where does the trust come from? It's that you're trusting that the group on average will all act in their own self-interest, one. Two, you trust in basic probability, which is that the group on average will find the solution to these math problems faster than any individual bad actor will. And even if the, here's another thing, even if this bad actor happens to get really lucky once, they will not get lucky twice or three times or four times or five times. Right. It's like no matter how lucky they get, they will never be able to keep up their lie. Right. Mm. Because it just gets more and more and more unlikely with every passing round. Right. right. Of writing in the book. Right. It just becomes too difficult. So if you ever heard, by the way, of a 51 percent attack on a blockchain or something like this, the listeners may have heard of this. Like this is the one vulnerability, right, of a network like, well, there are many, there are many distributed vulnerabilities. But this is the one biggest vulnerability that people talk about, which is what if somebody gets hold of 51% of the total computing power, right, and then can say whatever they want. That is actually a legitimate vulnerability, right? If somebody ever got 51% of the whole network, then it would just become a centralized system again. And now I can do whatever I want because it's effectively under my control, right? Mm-hmm. However, what's great about Bitcoin is as when Bitcoins become very valuable, it incentivizes new people to go buy mining rigs and hook up their computers and start trying to mine Bitcoin for themselves, right? So it makes it harder and harder for anybody to do that. Yeah. So as of right now, the total number of people who are all trying to, again, selfishly mine Bitcoin for themselves are all making it harder and harder for any one centralized attacker to break into the network and do what they want, right? It's a very weirdly elegant free market approach to this. Hmm. So that's where the trust comes from, right? It's like one, you trust that the group on average will always outrace any one bad actor. And two, you trust that the group at large will continue to be incentivized to do this because this protocol you've built, whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's agriculture coin or whether it's origin trail for that matter, will have some actual value to people in the real world doing actual work who will want to buy these tokens from you because these tokens let you use whatever the product does. Yeah, that's the liquidity right? of it. And th- that's the liquidity of it. And three, that a market will exist such that people can buy and sell these tokens for something that looks like fair market value. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, so, so that's what drives the miners. So what 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 yes. you know what drives the miners to mine is that there's going to be value in the tokens, and what creates the value in the tokens is is the value of the protocol in the real world. Exactly. Now there is sort of one glaring exception to this, which is Bitcoin itself. Right. right? Yeah. Which is that when people are like, "Well, what are Bitcoins actually good for?" They're basically good for nothing. Right. They're not good for sending and exchanging payments because they're super slow. They're not good for identity or they're not good for either anonymous or fully like confirmed transactions. They seem to be bad at basically everything. So why on earth are they worth money? Right. The answer is, well, if Bitcoin is worth money, 
if you so if you hold the hypothesis that in the long run bitcoins will be worth a lot of money is because you believe that they're going to do the same job that gold does now mm-hmm. right if you think about gold gold is also pretty useless at most things right it's yes i realize we use it for things like fillings and electronics and stuff but that's not what give gold gold is value right gold is valuable because everybody agrees that gold is value right and that yeah. is a store of value that is very difficult to tamper with it's like no matter what some government says, gold will not stop being valuable, right? So that makes it interesting. Hmm. Now, Bitcoin is a little bit like gold that you can send through wires, right? So it has this property, which is that it's digital and that you can send it places. And it is, to some degree, it is censorship resistant. But it is very bad at everything in the same way that gold is very bad at everything, right? But that may not necessarily matter. Now, the argument for gold that Bitcoin does not have, it's like, well, gold is valuable because people have considered it valuable for thousands of years, whereas Bitcoin is only a handful of years old, right? right. So if Bitcoin survives a thousand years, you'll bet it'll be valuable, right? I'm not right. necessarily saying that's happening, but that is generally the story that you are getting behind. But so it's worth thinking, though, that like for people who are coming at this from an agriculture perspective of saying, well, how can this actually be useful for my farm? Bitcoin is actually the wrong thing to think about, even though it is the very original and it is truly the genesis of all of this stuff. But you shouldn't think of it in terms of, oh, well, my token will be valuable because Bitcoin is becoming valuable. Mm-hmm. That's a very different thesis. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, now, the last thing we have to talk about um, is what does it mean for me to build a, an agriculture product, product on the blockchain? Right. What does that actually mean in practice? Yeah. So you heard from these guys, Origin Trail, the other day. You know, really cool company, love what they're doing. And they said something, which is, we're building this on the Ethereum network, right? They said, we're building, I believe it's an ERC-20 token, which I imagine is gobbledygook to most of the (laughs) listeners to uh, the podcast. I'll admit, I Googled, yeah. (laughs) So what that basically means is, you know, suppose I'm an entrepreneur, I know how to write good code, I like this blockchain stuff, and I say, hey, I have a great application for this in an agriculture supply chain product. I face this problem, though, which is, suppose I design some beautiful protocol for doing some sort of supply chain application, I think, okay, now I have to recruit both farmers on the one side to this market, Mm -hmm. and also miners to the other side of this market, and I need to put together all of this really difficult cryptographically secure math to make it all work, right? That's really hard. So you were asked, what if there was a general purpose blockchain that rather than just being restricted to payments or just being restricted to store of value could actually set you know, and maintain a ledger of anything, right? Anything that you could compute, right? Anything that you could phrase in terms of a contract of any kind. That's Ethereum, right? What Ethereum is, is says, this is a general purpose, you know, you can call it a blockchain that has a community of miners that are doing work and has a token called Ether, whose purpose is to provide basically the back end for any other type of application that people can come up with that can use its network of miners and its token in order to just go right to the part where you can start building something useful, mm-hmm. right? So when Origin Trail says, hey, we've got an application for farmers, we need to go recruit a bunch of farmers and convince them to use this tool, that's great. They do not need to go convince a bunch of miners 
about anything related to supply chain or anything related to agriculture. They can just take this community that already exists and say, we are another application on top of this. Right. right. Please continue to do the good work you do. On top of Ethereum. So they're taking of, the of Ethereum. Ethereum. Yep, exactly. Yep. Right. Exactly. So this, this has two really nice properties. One, the people who are doing the work to maintain this do not necessarily need to know anything about the contracts that they are securing. They may not understand anything about farming, but it doesn't matter, right? They just know that this is generally useful. Two, it means that you do not have to attempt to replicate the really, really difficult cryptographically secure code and math and all of the very, like, truly, genuinely difficult stuff, right? That involved in making sure that it's all secure and making sure that identities don't get leaked and all this stuff. Right. Like, let's just write that stuff once and make sure that it's maintained by this really good open source development team and not try to reinvent that wheel every single time, right? Well, we do not need to do that. Yeah. And getting back to what you said earlier, it's, it's the mm -hmm. group. If you didn't have a group of miners, then you'd have problems like this 51% uh, problem. Exactly. You, exactly. you need the established right. group at scale. Exactly. And the bigger the established group is, the more resistant your token and your protocol and your application will be from some bad actor trying to come in and seize power. Right. Right. So that is actually something where it's like, again, it's like, you don't want to call it centralized because it's not centralized, but you do want one big pool full of people all competing over the right to do this work generally. Mm -hmm. Right. As opposed to many little kingdoms of small numbers of people trying to do the work, therefore all being more vulnerable. Yeah. Hope you enjoyed that interview and that you got as much value out of it uh, as I did learning about how the blockchain works and how to think about these things going forward. There actually is more to that interview. Uh, you might notice I, I cut it off a little bit short. The last part of it I wanted to save for the very last episode in the series because it's a great kind of what should we do with this information next. And I think I thought that was really appropriate maybe for how we'll close out our series. So you're going to hear more from Alex on a future episode. Uh, in the meantime, though, if you want to reach out to him, check him out on Twitter. It's at Alex underscore Danko. Uh, it's D-A-N-C-O. So make sure you reach out to him there. Also, make sure you're checking out the Farm and Rural Ag Network, which this show is a part of. Uh, it's got great other podcasts and YouTubers related to uh, food and agriculture and farming at farmruralag.com. Finally, we're giving out a book. We're giving away a book, just a very short, I, I hesitate to call it a book because I don't want whoever wins it to be disappointed. It may be more of a pamphlet, but it uh, it does run, I think, 15, 16 bucks on Amazon. I bought it to start learning about blockchain a couple months ago and obviously um, have uh, not a need to reread it after talking to experts like Alex. Uh, so I'm happy to give that away to somebody who is an email subscriber of this show. To become eligible, go to futureofag.com. Thanks, guys. We'll be back next week with another interview with a startup founder uh, in agriculture that has a blockchain-enabled application. See you then. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit futureofag.com. That's futureofagag.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Oh, 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 oh,